through 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed, only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. evening. It is a pleasure to be with you once again this afternoon. We are thankful for the opportunity through God's providential care to allow us another opportunity to come together this Lord's Day to worship Him and praise Him as He is so richly deserving of. This evening, I want us to consider some things that Paul mentions here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would be turning there, we'll read that passage and look at some ideas and some words that are contained in that passage that might be a little bit unique. But I want to first start out, before we read there, I want to think about the word theology for a moment. That's sometimes a word that we don't use a lot in a church or a congregational setting, Sometimes that word is met with some disdain that we don't do theology. The word theology is nothing to be afraid of. I think I can say that. While it may not be a word that we find directly in the Scriptures, the word comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and logos, which is the idea of word, thought, or idea. In John chapter 1, when John says that the Word became flesh. That, I, that word is the word logos. And whenever he says that in John chapter 1 that the Word was God, and that's Theos. So the idea is firmly planted in Scripture that Theos and Logos are combined to be theology. And it's simply, theology is simply a thought or a word about God. That's all that we mean whenever we practice or, or when we talk about theology. Everything that we have done in our worship service today is theology in a sense because it is an expression of praise to God. It's thinking about God through the songs that we have been led in. I appreciate very much Dave. He asked me what I was going to preach on and I said about God's sovereignty. And I said, you're probably not going to have much luck and Lo and behold, he probably finds the only song in the hymn book that has the word sovereign in there about God. I, I'm, I'm impressed. So you have something to live up to next time. But while theology, sometimes I think it scares people because we think of uh, theology as just sitting around drinking coffee and just kind of fantasizing about God or thinking in philosophical terms that are not uh, firmly rooted in truth. And that's the very opposite of what theology, true theology, is. And one important concept in theology is understanding the nature and character of God. One of the theological buzzwords that is sometimes applied to God is His sovereignty. And this is not made up because God is indeed the sovereign ruler of the world and the universe. That He has the power to create. He has the power to bless. He has the power to give life. All these themes that we have been singing about tonight and that we're going to be seeing here that Paul writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He mentions all of these things. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you will read with me in verse 15... As he's speaking about Jesus Christ, he says in verse 15, reading from the New American Standard Bible, it says, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion Amen. 
And while the idea of God's sovereignty might be something of a foreign idea to some people, it is an idea that I believe is taught in Scripture, but it is also something that is been distorted. That God's sovereignty has been distorted to be something that is incompatible with human free will. And so people have twisted the nature of God to be wholly different than the biblical portrayal of God. And then it turns God into a self-seeking deity who arbitrarily gives life or condemnation based solely on His sovereignty and His choice in things with no regard for people's faith. And that is the idea that is associated with Calvinism. And we're going to talk some more about that as we wrap up our lesson this evening. But the Calvinistic theology, the systematic approach of uh, the tulip theory, sometimes known as Reformed theology, which was promoted by John Calvin, but and sometimes I think we call it Calvinism, but it was actually a lot older than John Calvin. Uh, Augustine, one of the, you know, back in the three, four hundreds uh, AD, Augustine taught many of the same things that John Calvin did. John Calvin just kind of packaged it a little bit nicer and cleaner, and it has been associated and called Calvinism. But Calvinism, it takes this idea of God's sovereignty and it distorts it beyond what the Bible actually says. And so we need to understand something about God. We need to understand something about who He is. We need to understand and recognize His power, His authority. We need to understand who He is as the Bible portrays. Because we need to defend God's sovereignty. We don't need to be afraid to talk about God's sovereignty. But we also need to recognize what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. We don't need to expand and distort and twist God's sovereignty into something that it is not. And that's something that God is not. We certainly do not want to be guilty of misrepresenting the God of the Bible. The God who we worship and the God who has created us and all that we see and do. And so, as we look here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, what is very interesting as Paul is closing out this letter to Timothy, what he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to just see what Paul is doing, he is putting God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on equal plane. I think you can see that there in verse 13 when he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. He says, This is something that I'm charging you to do. You are to be faithful. You are to keep all these things, all the commandments that I'm giving you. You're to keep this because God expects it of you and Christ Jesus expects it of you. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus in verse uh, 15 when he says, which He will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what Paul is doing is making a very strong claim to Jesus' deity. But don't forget that he has already connected Jesus with God, the Father, that Jesus is God. That's what uh, he is doing here. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul opens this letter to Timothy with very much the same kinds of statement. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in that context, he is talking about Jesus Christ once again. And that's something that the pages of the New Testament are filled with 
It is filled with the affirmation that Jesus is God. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1 in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 15, as he's talking about Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being, but that He is the preeminent one in all of God's creation. He is the ruler of all of God's creation. That Jesus has been placed in this position of authority to rule and to demonstrate His power. The Hebrew writer makes a very clear argument in Hebrews chapter 1 about the deity of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 1, the Hebrew writer says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So you see that His Son was a part in the creation, that He took part in this. In what we see around us, Jesus had a part in creating this world. He is God. In verse 3, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. It's not that He's just similar or close to... Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus to understand who God is. And he goes on to say in verse 8, as he's quoting some of the passages from the Old Testament, he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. That Jesus, the Son of God, is indeed God. And as we come to know Jesus, we are coming to know who God is. We're learning more about the Father. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, we've already alluded to this text of Scripture. But in John chapter 1, where the Apostle is giving us some insight into who Jesus really is, he begins in chapter 1 and verse 1 with a statement that is certainly drawing from the book of Genesis. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's that word logos there. That in the beginning was the logos, and the the logos was with the theos. That's how it would read something like that in Greek. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And we go on in verse 14 when John would tell us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you come to this statement in verse 18 when he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That Jesus, the only begotten One, He has been in the bosom of the Father. He is intimately knowing who God is. And He has explained Him. That as we come to know who Jesus is, we are coming to know who God is. And that's something that we see Jesus fully acknowledges. In, later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6 and in verse 46, Jesus Himself says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the One who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I am the One who is revealing God. I'm the One that you need to be listening to. Later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14, In John chapter 14 and in verse 9, when Jesus is speaking with His apostles, this is the night that He is to be betrayed. 
In John chapter 14 and in verse 9, Jesus said to him, that is Philip, the apostle, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's saying, I am revealing my Father to you. And what Paul is doing, he is drawing upon that idea here that as we come to see who Jesus is, we are also seeing who God is. And that's why he is able in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to show us and to make this charge to Timothy to be faithful. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. And so whenever he describes God and he describes Christ, he is doing so in a way that describes both of them at the same time. Jesus is the Word that became flesh, that existed with God, and He is the one who explains who God is. He gives us some concrete evidence of who God is and what God does. And we will never be able to understand the nature of God if we do not look to Jesus Christ. And it's something that we need to understand and recognize very early on. But then, as you see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and in verse six, uh, 15, and verse 16 as well, in this description of Jesus Christ, he uses that word sovereign to describe Jesus and God. In Paul's affirmation of Christ's deity, he calls Him the sovereign King, essentially. That he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that may not be the first thing that would uh, come to our mind if we were to describe God. If I asked you to describe God, you might say God is love. Or you might say God is gracious, God is merciful. You might say something like that that would describe God and that would be absolutely correct. We probably don't think of this idea of sovereignty in association with God necessarily. But it is... an a description that is used by the Apostle Paul here. And A.W. Pink, he said in describing God, and I think he says some really good things here in this statement, while he might have some uh, nuances that I would not fully agree with, I think he does defend the sovereignty of God in giving us an idea of what sovereignty really is and what it means. He says, the sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say unto Him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms and overthrowing empires and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate. That might be some of what your translations would say there in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, such is the God of the Bible. I think he does a, a fair job here in trying to hammer out what we mean by the sovereignty of God. That we are talking about God in His essence and who He is in His complete power, in His complete control, and what He is able to do, and that He has authority above all other beings. And we see that in descriptions of Him in the Bible, 
in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14, in verses 19 and 20, we see that when Abraham encounters Melchizedek, that Abraham blesses Melchizedek, and he blessed him and said, or when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, rather, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That God is recognized as the preeminent one, the one who has all authority and all power, who rules over all things and all people. Another description that we might think of that would suggest God in His great power is the fact that He is described as the Almighty God. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 15, the book of Revelation is filled with wonderful descriptions of God and His glory and of Jesus Christ and His great power. The book of Revelation in chapter 15 and in verse 3 is one such place that we see the description of God. Where it says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. When we say that God is Almighty, we're not, it's not just a filler word. It's describing God and His might, His power, His strength, that He is able to conquer and rule and destroy or give life. We mean that God is a mighty and powerful God. You think about His omnipotence. That's sometimes a, a word that we would throw around to describe God and that He is all-powerful. You can see that in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 when God speaks things into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. You and I can't just speak something into existence and it appear, can we? If you have that magic ability, I would like to know. I'd like to see it. But you see God's power from page one of the Scriptures. You see His what's sometimes called His omnipresence, that God is ever-present and He is everywhere. In Acts chapter 17, in, in Paul's sermon in Athens, he is addressing a lot of the pagan and idolatrous ideas associated with God and he is trying to present to them the true God of heaven. And in Acts chapter 17 and in verse 27, he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. That God can be found from by anyone at any place at any time. That is something that is unique to God. That is not true about me, right? How many times have you ever uh, thought your, to yourself, boy, I wish I had a clone of me today. If you're a parent, you've probably had that thought a bunch of times. You know, I wish I had another me because you had to be at two places at the same time and you had to choose, right? Or you had to make some big arrangements to make that happen. Uh, God can be found anywhere, at any point in time, from anyone. That's something that's unique to deity. His omniscience that He knows all things and He is able to grant to men like Daniel the ability to know and understand that He is able to grant that kind of power that kind of understanding that God knows all things past, present, and future. He knows things that have not ever come to pass, but could have come to pass. We'll talk about that some in a little bit. But when we are talking about God, we are talking about God's great power in all of these things. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you see... Paul described some things about God there in verse 16. He alone possesses immortality. 
He dwells in unapproachable light. What a wonderful description of the Lord, the God of heaven. Earlier in verse 13, he describes how God is the one who gives life to all things. He is a life-giving God. From the very opening page of Scripture, we see that God is the one who has authored such life and the existence of everything. We see that He is the King, that He is the one who rules over the hearts of men and women, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, His immortality that He alone possesses. He never had a beginning. And He never will have an end. That's something that's not true about you and me, is it? We have a firm beginning and we have an end in terms of death. That's something that God is never going to experience. Because He always is. You think about the description in the book of Exodus about God. In Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, whenever God appears to Moses, calls Him to be the leader of the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 3, at the scene of the bush, there when Moses appeared to before God, standing on holy ground, in verse 6, he, all, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's an interesting statement there that he would say, I am. And then he goes on to whenever Moses asks, who am I going to say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That God, Yahweh, is the one who has eternally existed, who always exists, and that He simply is. He simply is the One who exists. But as we see these descriptions of God and descriptions that wouldn't fit Jesus Christ as well, I think it's beneficial for us to think about his kingship in particular here for a moment. You think about a king who is a sovereign king. We might sometimes say a nation is a sovereign nation. That is, that they stand alone. They have complete autonomy. That they have a ruler who is their sovereign, an appointed ruler, that he has the power and the control to dictate what would happen in that particular country or nation. And you think about that as a description of God. That sometimes God is pictured as a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we certainly see that God, in His own description of Himself, He saw Himself as Israel's king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you will be turning there with me, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see here that this was the moment whenever the children of Israel came to Samuel and they said, we don't want to have judges who rule over us. We want to have a king so we, that we can be like all the other nations. And you remember that Samuel was a little perplexed by this request and he wasn't sure entirely what he ought to do. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They have rejected me from being king over them. You think about God and His rule, His sovereign rule, His kingship, His authority. God has always allowed for human free will. He has always made Himself vulnerable, if you will, to suffer rejection. He has allowed for us as His creation to either accept Him or deny Him. 
You think about that. And I would suggest that only a sovereign creator could do that. (laughs) Only a sovereign creator could even make that kind of choice. God never forces people to follow Him that don't want to follow. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, we see another statement that the Apostle Paul makes while he was preaching in Lyconia. In Acts chapter 14 and in verse 16, in the middle of the sermon as he's contrasting the God of heaven to their idols. Paul says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. God allows people to do what they want to do. And if there, I can't think of a, a better text than 1 Samuel 8 or Acts 14 here to consider that God allows for free choice. He allows for free will. He allows people to choose to follow Him or choose to be disobedient to Him. What you see is that God's sovereignty is not forced on people who are unwilling to accept it. God's sovereignty is never compulsion. And I want to think this evening for the remainder of our time, a little bit about this conundrum of God's sovereignty and human freedom. Because I think this is something that is really critical. It's extremely important for us to understand, especially if we want to understand the doctrine of Calvinism. Because Calvinism is this systematic form of teaching that is based upon a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God at the heart of Calvinism. Calvinism is the tulip theory, the tulip doctrine. That it is the total hereditary depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The tulip uh, doctrine. And, And what is not in that tulip is the word sovereignty. But I think that is at the foundation of the whole thing. And what it wrongly assumes. Now Calvinism is right in that God is sovereign. But as we need to be aware that every false doctrine is based upon a partial truth. God is sovereign. However, God's sovereignty is never compulsion. It's never forced. But in the Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereignty, they have to have a God who is always exercising His abilities and His powers and who never limits Himself. Not only does God, according to Calvinism, know all things, but He must cause all things. He has to cause everything. And that's why in Calvinism they deny, if you run into a good Calvinist, he's going to say that you don't have free will. That you were born with a sinful nature and that is what you are bound to. That you have no free choice. You were born a sinner and you will remain a sinner unless God sovereignly chose you. And that comes into the idea of predestination. That God, in His sovereignty, He predestined everything that would occur in your life, in my life, in everyone's life. That everything that has ever happened to you, good or bad, it has happened to you because God decreed that it would. I have a. I think I understood that because I 
When I was growing up, I heard a lot about Calvinism. And, and I heard a, a great deal of teaching in, in how to argue with a Calvinist. And one of my, my best friends in high school, he and I are still really good friends to this day, he, he was a, a strong Calvinist. And he, he fully understood that some of the nuances of it, and he embraced it. He embraced it. <clears throat> Until his youngest brother committed suicide. And I was at the funeral, and the the preacher, when he got up there and decreed that God had predetermined from before the foundation of the world that that would happen, that's when my friend's eyes began to be opened. He saw that that's not the God of the Bible. But according to Calvinism, that's exactly what happened. That God predetermined everything that has ever happened. Notice in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Confession of Faith of the Presbyterians, it says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. In that statement, that God predestined everyone that's going to be saved, but you know what else He also predestined? This is called the double predestination in Calvinism. He also predestined everyone who is going to be eternally lost. Notice what it says. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory. That's the only reason for it. Some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. What a system right there. What a God right there. That the reason that some people are saved is because... God predetermined that. But then others are lost and doomed to eternity in hell for no other reason than that God chose them to go to hell. And you can't move from one to the other. It's fixed. It, their number, at the end of that, their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. That's the dark side of predestination. And that is a distortion of God's sovereignty. Because the Bible in no way presents this idea of God. That God is the cause of everything. Good or evil. The Bible doesn't suggest such a thing. That's, that was something, you know, maybe you've probably seen that kind of quote before. I heard this quote back in 2005. A good friend of mine, Bruce Reeves, he was holding a debate against a Calvinist preacher named Gene Cook. And he said, both evil and good come from God. And then he kind of starts trying to talk out of both sides of his mouth a little bit. He says, so what happens when he emphasizes the will of man, then evil becomes only associated. There is no sense in which God decrees evil. There is no sense in which God wills evil. And so evil is only from the heart of man and from the heart of Satan. But we recognize as Reformed Christians that those are secondary causes, that the first cause of evil is God Himself. Man does not resist evil when he 
fulfilling the decrees of God. That's what Calvinists really believe, that God is the first cause of evil. Every sin, everything that has ever been committed, every molestation, every murder, every rape, every suicide, it came because God decreed it. He's the first cause of it. Mr. Cook went on to say that the devil is God's devil. He does what God allows him to do. He does what God commands him to do. No more and no less. If that's true, then the devil is the most obedient person I know. What a a distortion. of God and His purposes. All in order to try to defend God's sovereignty. Think about God and His power to know all things. And something that is important to think about in God predestination and things like that. What the Calvinist has to argue is that if God knew something, talking about God's knowledge or God's foreknowledge, if God knows something, then He causes that to happen. And He predetermines that it will happen. And so, the Calvinists, they have to equate foreknowledge and foreordination or predestination. They have, they're essentially the same thing. But what we see in the Bible is that God can have knowledge of certain things that have never happened. This was transformative for me in understanding some of these things and the implications of some of these things. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. In 1 Samuel chapter 23... This is a moment in the life of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, David is on the run, if you'll remember. He is running from King Saul who is trying to kill him. And, and so he comes near with his men, David does, that are running and fleeing with him, that are being loyal to David. They come near a city named Goliath. And while there, David is wondering what's going to happen. In verse 9, it says, Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Goliath to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Goliath surrender me into his hand? Notice what David is doing. He's asking God, are the people of Goliath, are they going to, to hand me over to Saul? That's his question to the Lord. Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God... Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Goliath. He did what he
God is still creating you I think we sometimes need to think more about 
We must be ardent defenders of the true God in heaven. And we need to be careful to avoid the caricatures of God's sovereignty. We need to be certain that we recognize a God Because we will never fully comprehend things Romans chapter 11 and verse number 6. Oh, the depth of the mystery.